Many people think that the purpose of a Messiah is to create equity among all people. That he should take from the rich and give to the poor. That he should correct all political deficiencies in a society. That he should kick out any group or culture that's dominant in that culture and liberate the oppressed. In short, he should fix whatever bothers you and whatever it is that interferes with your rights and comforts. That's what most people think the Messiah is supposed to do. Is it the task and mission of the Messiah to create an individual utopia for each one of us according to our own dreams of how the world ought to be? Evidently, that was the thinking of the Jews in Jesus' day, many of them at least. They wanted a political liberator, someone to deliver them from this awful inflation, someone to bring down gas prices. And because this was their focus, they missed the one who could liberate them from sin and death. This is Palm Sunday. And I want you to get your Bibles now or your mobile device, whichever you prefer. And go to John chapter 12 and verses 12 and following. Um, Hey, I would, uh, dads, I I would offer a word of advice to to you. And you can take this. This is not preaching. It's just advice. Um, I I went to, I went to seminary with guys who were from Louisiana and they called it lanyap. It just means extra good stuff. I don't know. You're not going to be able to pass down to your children, your mobile device. I would encourage you to get a book. A Bible and I would write in it and I would highlight it and I would write prayers in it and leave them something that they can look at and go this is what dad really pursued in his life I'll just encourage you in that way I'm not saying it's wrong to use your mobile device it's okay it's not it's not it's not a sin here okay don't worry I'm not I'm not thumping on you but I am just saying um, it's a good thing to to do that and so you might want to think about making that switch. Now, if you don't know what kind of Bible to get, I want to encourage you to see our chairman of deacons, David Brown. He will lead you and guide you into the most expensive Bible in the history of humanity. So just be prepared for that. Dave gets ready to buy a Bible. He talks about selling things first, you know. So I'm just warning you about that. And hence, I have one. So, amen. Uh, what is it that the Messiah is supposed to be? We better get on track here. I'll just quench the spirit just right then, didn't I? Now, let's, uh, let's get on track. So, uh, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. Behold, your king is coming. And so, I want you to see now the excitement at his arrival. Look at verses 12 through 18. The next day, the Bible says, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they, they heard he had done this sign. 
the excitement at his arrival. First you see in this excitement from the crowd, there is the praise to the king. They shout over and over again, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now Hosanna means something like this, give victory now. We want victory, give it to us now. And so you are welcome. And so blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's an, a Jewish idiom meaning you're welcome here. And those of you that uh, went to synagogue with me and you understand, you know, the, the uh, Arabic phrase, "Assalamu alaikum, it's kind of like that. Okay, so it's just blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's a welcoming. So they're saying, give us victory now, O King of Israel. You are welcome here. And so they were saying this over and over. Give us a strong military, they were saying. Because they're being oppressed. They're being oppressed by a dominant culture. The Roman culture has come in. And, and it's not just a military presence. It's the Roman way of life that's being pressed down upon to the Jewish people. Now, Rome was okay with pluralism in their society. They were pluralistic like America is. Any old religion is okay. And so they, they were okay with that. Except there was, there's just one exception to it all. No matter what religion that you followed, you had to annually reconfess your loyalty to Caesar. And how you confessed that loyalty was this. You had to bring some small offering and say these words, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. You didn't even have to mean it. And your offering could even be just a pinch of salt. I'm bringing Caesar this gift, even a pinch of salt, if you'll do that and put it on the altar, and you'll just confess Caesar is Lord, even if you didn't mean it, then you're free to go back and practice whatever religion you want to practice. It's okay with them, as long as you did that and paid taxes. Okay, those two things. And so to have this person coming into Jerusalem now, the capital of this area of of, of Roman province of Judea, And for the people to begin to shout, give us deliverance. You're welcome here, King of Israel. This is a huge statement. It's a big statement. It's a political statement. It's saying, we want you to raise a military. We want you to protect our political rights. We want you to protect our religious system. This is the kind of king that we want. We want a practical one. We want a pragmatic one. We want one who will fix our problems in the here and now. We want the problems, our circumstances to be aligned so that life won't be so stinking hard. That's the Messiah we want. So you're welcome if you'll do that. That's what the crowd's saying. See, they had heard about the resurrection of Lazarus, that Jesus had raised this man from the dead. And it wasn't just his close followers that were saying it. It was other Jews. And other Jews were going all through Jerusalem saying, Listen, this is what happened. We were there. This guy was dead. I mean, he was stone cold dead. And Jesus came and spoke a word and raised him from the dead. And we saw it ourselves. And so they were in Jerusalem saying these things. And so then when Jesus comes up to Jerusalem, there's a huge crowd that comes out yelling, Hosanna, here is our deliverer. Here's the one to bring us victory. Here's the one to make the world right again. And that's what they hope for. Now, if you're not a student of the Bible, what Jesus does next doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. 
Because what Jesus does next is he's, he's, he really speaks a parable without saying anything. And so this is the, the parable by the king in verses 14 through 16. Jesus finds a young donkey. He sits on it. As it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on donkey's colt. The disciples at that time, his closest followers, didn't even really understand why he did this. But here's what he's doing. Jesus, by this simple act, is repudiating. He is correcting the concept that they had that he is coming to release them and to liberate them from their human oppressors. That's not why he's coming. And he's communicating to them why he is coming by this simple act of riding into Jerusalem on a colt. On a, on a small donkey, a young donkey. He is saying something to them. And so what is it he's saying? Well, he is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, which is partially quoted here by John. And what he is saying is that I'm not that kind of king. I'm the kind of king who brings peace. And here's something else that the crowd did not yet understand. When we read verse 10 of Zechariah 9, Zechariah the prophet speaking of the Messiah goes on to say these words, and these are important. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you you know what that's saying? Do you know what it means to say that Jesus will be king to the ends of the earth? It means that he is the Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. See, the Jews had this in mind. We're the good people, and those Roman people are the bad people. And if you're any kind of Messiah, you'll get us free from these bad people so that we can continue to be good people. And the best way to do that is just just annihilate these people. You can do that. So just by your power, just get rid of them. So that's their concept of heaven on earth. And then everything will be just back to normal like it was. And here's what Jesus is saying. By this illustration with this donkey, he's saying, I've come to bring peace, not just for you, but for these Romans too. Not just for those who know the law of Moses, but also for those who know nothing but paganism. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. His dominion is for all kinds of people, not just for the Jews. You know, the Jews didn't see it. Neither did the disciples. Why? Because they were looking for a different kind of liberation. To them, the problems were always out there rather than in here. And what Jesus is saying is we can get you out of any circumstances, but you're still living with yourself. The greatest enemy that you have is your own corrupted flesh. That's your greatest enemy. All these other things, we we could fix that. But you still would be you. And the biggest problem you have in this world is you. Somebody asked uh, G.K. Chesterton one time. He was a philosopher, also a theologian. And said to him in a letter they wrote in the newspaper. And he had a column, you know. And they said, uh, sir, what do you think is the biggest problem in this world? And the next week he answered, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's the biggest problem that they had, but they didn't see it. For them, the problem was always someone else. 
they didn't see their, that they were far from God. Now look at this promotion by, these, by, by the people there of the king. The crowd that had been there they called Lazarus out of the grave. They continued to bear witness just over and over. They told as many people. Isn't it great that you have lost people talking about Jesus? These people were not followers of Jesus, but they had seen the miracle. And so they're telling everybody about it. The fervency of this crowd was that they had been there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And they're telling everyone what Jesus had done. And naturally, this attracted a great crowd. Now, here's the thing. Why did Jesus allow this? There have been many times when people wanted to promote Jesus. For example, Peter trying to rescue Jesus from harm. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. There are other times he's in Judea and the crowd gets in an uproar and they want to kill him. And he, the Bible says he just walks away because it's, his hour had not yet come. One time the crowd wanted to make him king and he got in a boat and went to the other side of the sea. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And even though these people in Jerusalem at this time really didn't understand the kind of king that he would be, he allows this great upheaval and this large following, this crowd and all this noise, he allows it. It's like a rock concert. Why is he allowing it? Because his hour had come. He knew that the one thing that would stir up the Roman government against him was if they feared that he was going to lead an insurrection against Rome. They feared a political leader and they would put that down as quickly as it arose. It happened several times in Jewish history already. And the Romans were not going to allow it. And Jesus knew it. And he rides right into Jerusalem anyway. Why? Because his hour had come. Now, look at the exasperation of his adversaries. This is, one, to me, one of the funniest verses in the Bible. So the Pharisees, now, now listen, the Pharisees have been plotting for like three years. And they've been trying, they, they've done everything they could. They, they've sent people to try to trip him up into saying something that would discredit him. They've tried to trick him into getting in a situation that he would die. They've done all kinds of things. And so here's what they'd say in verse 19. This, this, everybody at Jerusalem, there's all coming out to hail Jesus. And here's what the Pharisees say. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. See, they're talking to each other. You, see, look at y'all. We're gaining nothing here. Look, the world has gone after him. All of their plans had all failed. Everything they'd tried to do. But here's, here's something that, that they're saying. What, what they're saying is everyone is following Jesus. But, but they're doing it in a popular way. So that Jesus is the most popular man on the planet, they're saying. What can we do about that? But here's what they don't realize. They're actually uttering a prophecy. They don't recognize what they're saying. See, in the Gospel of John, there's, there's a word that is a common theme throughout this Gospel. And it is the word world. And by the word world, John doesn't mean, of course, this ball of dust that we walk on. Of course, he doesn't mean that. 
And sometimes Jesus uses the world to talk about the world system, the way that unsaved people, the society without God, the way it does things and the way it thinks and the philosophy it has. And so that's world, the world system. And so sometimes that is used in that way. But a lot of times in the Gospel of John, the word world just simply means this, people from every ethnicity. They didn't realize what they were saying. What they were saying was, Everybody, but in their mind, they thought Jews, all the Jews. Everybody in Jerusalem is going after him. And so that's, that's what they're thinking. But what the words really mean is that people from all kinds of places go after him. Now, when we quote John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, those of you that have Reformed theology, you think, well, see, I, I don't know, that messes up my Calvinism. No, it doesn't. The word world doesn't mean every single individual in the world. It means people from all different ethnicities. It's always meant that. How do we know that to be true? Well, you just fast forward to the book of the Revelation and you figure out. People from every tongue, tribe, and language are there at the throne. And so that's always been the plan of God. But the Jews never did see it. They didn't understand it. So now you see the, the, the uh, pervasive frustration of the Pharisees. We're gaining nothing, they said. We're so frustrated because we can't stop Jesus. His popularity with the people is actually increasing all that we've tried to do, plot, plan, we've met so many times. They had so many committee meetings. It was worse than a Baptist church. And they still couldn't do anything about it. But here's what they, they, they failed to understand right now. Jesus is purposely creating a dangerous situation. He is creating a situation that is going to go to the cross. Because he knows that it is his time. The political pressure is high. The Pharisees themselves feel threatened. But Jesus does threaten, doesn't he? Jesus does divide. Jesus doesn't tell everyone, oh, you're okay, I'm okay, you're okay, and all of that. He doesn't do that. He draws a line in the sand and says, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. If you don't, you'll perish. Just plain and simple. This is not a complicated message. Plain and simple. And he says the same thing to the Pharisees. Can you imagine? What, what, I would like to preach like a series of sermons sometime of all the hard sayings of Jesus. Like the title of my sermon today is, You are of your father the devil. Now invite your friends. But that's what Jesus said to them. You're, you're a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. You, you know what y'all are like? Y'all are like a bunch of tombs with like dead people in them. You look good on the outside, but you stink on the inside. I mean, these are things Jesus says to people. He's not looking to like, well, let's just make peace here. That's not it. He's dividing, and the Pharisees realize it, and they don't know what to do about it. And when they say there's this observation by them, and I said it's predictive, the world has gone after him. They didn't realize what they were uttering, but they were. The whole world. The cosmos, not just the Jews, but people of all ethnicities. And this is what he meant when he said to Nicodemus that God so loved the world. What? People from all ethnicities, not just you, Nicodemus, and the Jews, but my people, my sheep are going to be all kinds of people, not just Jewish people. The Israel of God, as Paul called it, is not just one ethnicity. As a matter of fact, the majority of that ethnicity perished without Christ. That's the saddest thing ever. As Paul said of the Jews, they had all the privileges. 
Theirs was the prophets, the covenant, the word of God, the law of Moses. They had every single advantage and squandered it. And Jesus is saying, I'm a Messiah, not to deliver you from that group of people, but to deliver these kinds of people from sin, Satan, and death. They didn't realize it at the time, but they were making a prediction about the ministry of Jesus. So now look at this, the explanation of his assignment. Let me back up uh, what I'm I'm saying about this. Okay, so the, the scripture goes on. And John says, now in verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Do you see the connection? The Pharisees have just said, the, the whole world has gone after him. The, the world is after, is chasing after Jesus. And immediately John records, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Do you see? This is what John has been saying, the whole gospel. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. So why would they come to Philip? Well, Philip is a Greek name. Now, Philip is a Jew, but he has a Greek name. And the reason for that is he's from Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles, as Isaiah called it. That area of Israel just had a lot of Gentile influence, a lot of Greek speaking. So unlike Jerusalem, Judea, more pure in its culture, Jewish culture, up there it was a, a lot of influence of, of other cultures. And, and asked him, these Greeks asked Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And there must have been some time lapse here between verse 19 and 20 because apparently Jesus uh, at this point is in the temple area teaching the, the, the porch of Solomon. He's probably there teaching at this point. And these Greeks come and say, We want to see Jesus. And so Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, okay, so are you tracking with John here? The Jews totally miss the boat. They don't see the kind of Savior that he is. They don't think they need that kind. Just remove all the barriers and we've got this, Jesus, if you can just get rid of all the, the problems. So they don't see it. The Pharisees, unknowingly, they utter it even though they don't understand it. The whole world, has got, people from all ethnicities are going after him. And what happens next is the Greeks come to Jesus. And when they do, and they come inquiring about Jesus, the next that Jesus doesn't answer them, the next thing he says is this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why would he say that here? It seems like he's not answering the question. Oh, he's answering the question. The question is, whose savior are you? And now, the Greeks having come to him, he's ready to say, the hour has come. What does he mean by glorified? Crucified. Isn't it interesting that Jesus calls that being glorified? When when we have to deal with any kind of difficulty because of following Jesus. We don't call it being glorified. We call it stinkified. We hate this God. Why does it have to be like this? Why does it have to be so hard to be a follower of Jesus? And on and on we go. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is in this passage of scripture explaining his assignment. Now, remember, the crowd misunderstands his assignment. The Pharisees misunderstand and are afraid of it. Jesus now, he's, he's already by riding the donkey. He's provided an illustration, if they would just think of the scripture, of the kind of Messiah that he is. And so now he goes further and says, okay, now that the hour has come, let me explain it to you a little more clearly. And Jesus, when he explains things clearly, uses parables, which often makes it more complicated in my view. But that's what he does. You know, so what does he do? He, he says here, what is he talking about? In the explanation of his assignments, he speaks of the significance of the Greeks. When the Greeks come and worship at the feast, he says, the hour has come. As soon as they ask about him, the moment, he declares, his hour has come. And the word has here, if you, if you look at, at the, this verse, verse 23, the hour has come. And so that particular verb, it's perfect tense. And so here's what that means. The, the hour, the, the moment of crisis, kairos, the moment of crisis has arrived and there is no turning back. That's what it means. Now, that would be a little clunky to do that in English in your Bible every time you have something like this. But that's why you pay preachers so they can explain it, see? So the hour, the crisis moment, the moment of crisis has arrived and there is no turning back. Some of you today, this is also your kairos moment. And by the way, it's kairos, not kairos. It's your kairos moment. It's your moment of crisis with Jesus. And it's a moment where there's no turning back. You must move forward with Christ. You may already be a Christian. And you've come to this place where God has confronted you. Perhaps with being lukewarm. Perhaps with sin or whatever. And it's your kairos moment. It is God saying, now then. You've got to dig in. And there is no turning back. Others of you, you haven't yet started following Jesus. God has brought you to this moment. Listen, there is no logical explanation for a person who's not a follower of Christ to be here today. Why would you do this? You're probably going to miss part of the masters before this is over. You could very well be late to Frisch's for doing this. What are you doing to yourself? Whether you recognize it or not. It is God who has orchestrated the events to bring you here this day. This is your Kairos moment. This is your moment, the moment of crisis in which you must make a decision whether or not you're going to follow Christ. And I would say this to you. If you're not going to follow Christ boldly and wholeheartedly, for God's sake, go and sin boldly. Don't ride the fence. Don't try to go halfway. God doesn't need any more good people. The hell is populated with good people. He doesn't, he's not looking for that. He, he doesn't need to die because we're good people. That's, that's not what this is about. And so I would just say to you, make a decision. Either move forward, just dig in and move forward with Christ, or walk away and go live for yourself with reckless abandon. That's what I would tell you to do. 
Jesus saying here, this is his kairos moment. It has arrived. There's no turning back. Now he speaks of, and he's, he's, he's explaining his assignment here, and so he, he, he's talking about the significance of the Greeks. Why is it significant that they've come? And they're asking for him because he came to die for sinners of all brands, all ethnicities, every sinner that would come to him. He died for them. He doesn't care. He, Jesus created people. Do you think it bothers him if somebody has a better tan than others? Do you think that bothers him at all? That, that's not the filter that he's thinking through here. And so the Greeks have come and it has verified what he was trying to tell them with the donkey. Riding the donkey from Zechariah chapter 9. He's trying to say to them, I'm showing this to you. Do you understand? Then he speaks of the sacrifice of his life in verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here's what he's saying. He says, I am willing to be completely expended in order that new life may spring up from the ground of my sacrifice. The only way new life can be imparted is the death curse of sin must be removed. There's no other way for there to be a harvest of righteous souls unless the one who is truly righteous dies in their place. He is going to be cursed for his followers so that the curse of sin may be broken. There is no other way. Jesus did not come as a social reformer. He did not come to enact social justice even. That's not why he came. He came to die for sinners that they might live in connection with him. We baptized Chloe just a minute ago. That, that's the, the baptism is the illustration of what Jesus is talking about here. When a person is baptized, what they're saying is, I believe that Jesus did for me what I'm showing in this baptism. That he died for me and that he rose again. And also the person is saying, I believe the next part of this verse that a follower of Jesus has to die to themselves. If they're truly believing in Jesus, they have to die to themselves and be raised to new life. We say being born again by the Spirit of God in order to live in union with Jesus. There is no other way. The sacrifice of his life. Now, he goes on to say this is a, these are two confronting verses for every Christian. But it's also a warning for the non-Christian. Verses 25 and 26, he speaks of the sign of his servants here. What, how do you know if we're followers of Jesus? Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That may seem like a, a conglomeration of, you know, like... A, Fruit salad or something. What in the world? All those words put together. What, what does it mean? Here's what Jesus is saying. It's not surprising that he would say this. That Jesus' true followers can be identified in this way. They are willing to expend their lives for him. This is not keeping up with ours. I serve Jesus uh, a lot. 
or I give a lot of my time to the church. This is not, this is not like I, I, I give God more than I give other things. This is not that. Jesus is not saying, now compare, uh, be, be sure that during your week, as you're comparing, that you give me just five minutes more than you give other things and we'll be good. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? If you love your life in this world, if you love this kind of living, if living for the here and now, we're not talking about sinfulness now. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a mindset. We're talking about a philosophy of life. We're talking about a motive for living. If you love what this world brings to you, and you live your life for it, you lose it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have so many trivial pursuits in this nation. Wealth is a wonderful blessing, and it is also a curse. It provides so many opportunities for us to do what I would call morally neutral things. That nobody could say to you, doing that is wrong. Nobody can say that. But what happens is, we begin to love doing those morally neutral things. And we fill our lives up with things that are morally neutral. And the next thing you know, we love what those things bring back to us. They always bring the approval of the other people around us, don't they? They always bring a pat on the back at a boy. They always make you feel like, as you can look at other people who have not attained as much as you have, whether it's financial, education, or whatever, it, it gives you a way to gauge where you are in life and that they're not where you are. And so, therefore, I'm doing great. And you feel great about yourself. And that self-driven, self-exalting, self-glorifying life is the very opposite of what our Savior did on the cross. He shamed himself for our sake. Remember Philippians 2 where it says, even though in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped and held on to, but he turned loose of that and became a servant, came in the form of a man in order that he may be obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. That's our Savior. Not this Savior who gets the applause of men. Yay! Deliver us. Make us wealthy. Make us free. Yay! Give us a wonderful life here and now. And that's what people are doing to Christianity in this world. They think that's why Jesus came. To make you a good, wealthy American. And we bought into it. To give you more recreational time. And we bought into it. And Jesus is talking about life and death. It's an all or nothing thing. If you love your life in this world, at the end, you will find that you live for worthless things. Worthless things. You say, well, preacher, are you telling me that it's wrong to go squirrel hunting? Well, brother, I'm glad you asked such a deep theological question. It's not, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying it's wrong. That's not, see, this is the problem with these things. They're not wrong. The problem with things is they have a tendency to get hold of us and dominate our lives, control us, make decisions for us. 
You know, it's one thing a guy wants to pick up his shotgun and go out in the woods and blast some things that move. I did say that. It's therapy. But you have to be careful that you don't start becoming this person that, like, that's all you think about. And I just want to get out there in the woods. And I just, I just got to have it. I just got to do it. And it begins to dominate. It dominates how you spend your money. You always need a better shotgun. You always do. The one you have is never good enough. You always need a better tree blind. You always need, you always need, always need. And, and then you need more time. You need to be out there more. And you make friends, and then you're out there with them more. And the next thing you know, you become that person. I see it on your pickup trucks. That becomes your identity. And you know why? You have started loving it. Again, you want to go hunting, go on out there, man. It's a good thing. But you start loving that, and it starts controlling, and it starts deciding for you. And this is what Jesus is saying. But if you hate your life in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. In other words, this. If you hate how easily you're drawn aside to things that capture your heart and pull your affection away from Jesus. If you hate that in this life and you do everything that you know to turn away from it and shun it, that is a mark of eternal life. A person who has a taste of eternal life doesn't want to go back and eat with the billy goats. Those things become frivolous. Even the things that are morally neutral, they become frivolous to you. You just don't care. Why? Because you've had a taste of the eternal. When I was growing up as a boy, the Vandergriffs lived next to us. And there was a spring uh, down from their house, and it was a spring where they would get their water. And my dad helped them to, you know, hook a pump up so they could actually pump it to their house. And it was a long way, man. But I'm telling you to this day, if I were to drive up Hines Creek Road, I promise you I would stop at that spring and get a drink of water. The best, coldest water ever. No chlorine or nothing. Tastes good. Why? Because when you have a drink of that, you, the, the other just tastes weird. It just tastes flat. It tastes, I don't know, something's wrong with it. And when you get a taste of eternal life, and the life that it is, not, I'm not just talking about when you get to heaven, I'm talking about in the here and now, then you crave that. And it causes other things to become less and less important. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The sign of his servants. This is what they do. And then he, say, he goes on to say, okay, let me say it a different way. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. We have guests here today, uh, church members, so you recognize the fact that I'll probably quit here pretty quick. If they weren't here, we'd be going to 1230. Here, here's the message. You need to start inviting more people to church so you can get out quicker. That's my evangelism strategy. How do you think? What do you think? I think it works good. I should have thought of that seven years ago. Here's what he's saying here, though. Uh, if it, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, if anyone serves me, 
He must follow me. What does that mean? He's saying this. His followers are going to be marked by expending their lives for his kingdom. Pouring it out completely. Not partially. Not as a hobby. Not when it's convenient. But this will be the consuming priority of their lives. It's not just a hobby. It's not just a sideline. But serving the Savior in the kingdom is the obsession. That's what he's saying. There's no neutral ground here. He's not grading on a curve. You become a slave to me. Then you must follow me into this life of expending yourself for the sake of the kingdom. Put it all out there. Because here's the reality. Whatever you try to hang on to in this world, you will lose every single bit of it when you die. But if you're investing all you got into eternity, you get it all when you get there. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what Jesus said. This is the mark of his servants. They have become obsessed. They have become consumed with giving themselves away. Now this is hard, isn't it? Because as a Christian, we still have the remnants of the flesh in us. We still have depravity that stirs itself up in our hearts so easily. So it's very hard, you know, because we get tired. And we go and we serve someone in Jesus' name and you don't, maybe don't get any appreciation or maybe they speak ugly at you or maybe they call you stupid or whatever it may be. And so you, you start feeling, this is just hard. Here's what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to start craving that. That every time something like that happens, we say to ourselves, where my Savior is, that's where the servant will be. And what my Savior has done, I will follow. That's what he wants from us. Now, here's, here's the reward. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you see that? If anyone becomes enslaved to me, Jesus is saying. See, sometimes we think serving Jesus is like this spontaneous thing that we do here and there. You know, I'm going to serve Jesus for a few minutes. And over here. Now, what Jesus is saying here is, is this. Serve, this is a lifestyle. Serves. It's not every once in a while. It's a lifestyle. So if you become a lifestyle of enslaved to Jesus, the Father will honor you. Do you, do you know why that is? Because if we take our lives and give them to Jesus and say, you're Lord, you make all the decisions, I make none, I'm on a cross, I don't get to decide. I'm crucified with Christ, I don't have decisions to make. My only decision is to know what does the Savior want of me. And do you know what that gets you in this world? Dishonor. No, I won't work on Sunday because I go to church on Sundays. I'm sorry. You're an idiot. Don't you realize you get double time on Sunday? Now, don't, listen, don't feel false conviction. Some of you, just the nature of your job, you just don't have a choice. And I was talking to one of our church members today making a sacrifice during the week just so they could be here for Easter. That's the kind of thing a Christian does. You can't, but if you're doing it just to get more money, you know, what, what are you saying? I, I, I don't want to forsake it. 
Well, you're going to get your honor. It's going to be in your bank. You'll get honored. But you will not be honored by the Father. You have to decide. Uh, Julie and I have been tithing now for I don't know how many years, as long as we've been alive, just about. So we've been doing that. And tithing doesn't mean give something. It means 10% plus of your income. You have to decide. There have been moments in my life where I've gotten angry at the church and thought to myself, I should just keep my tithe so I can have a BMW and get this over with, right? You know? But no. That's how you get honor in the world. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I'm in southern Ohio. A Ford pickup, fully loaded. Okay, now I got it. I got it fixed. Okay, sorry. I just had a moment. had a lapse there. So, you know, you, you can do that. And there's nothing wrong with having one. I'm not saying that. That's, that's not the point. But the point is, I can get honor. And the, the boys come out. Mine's a good pickup you got there, son. That's a nice one. That. And, I, and I go out and drive around and get mud on it so they really think I'm tough. You know, and, you know, so you can, do, you can do it. Or you forego that. And you shoot for honor in the next world. But you just can't have it both ways. You just can't have it both ways. Here's the question that we're asking here. Who is willing to forsake self-glory? Who's willing to forsake it? The followers of Jesus forsake it. No one pats a slave on the back. The slave just does his or her duty. The glory goes to the owner. That's what it means to serve him. This is what Jesus did. Jesus took all the privilege that he had as the son. All the power. All the glory. He laid this aside. He took on humanity and the status of a servant to be shunned, to be shamed, to be spat upon, to be crucified, to be mocked. Can you imagine being mocked by people who were experts in the book that you had written? And they didn't even know it. Could you imagine having the very creatures that you created and their breath is in your hand and them using that breath to slander you? But that's exactly what he endured. Why? Because unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus died for sinners. And if you have any interest in that, then you're included as one of those sinners. Jesus died for you, dear Christian, as well. The question for us is, are we willing to be like a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and let all of our ambitions, all of our attempts of self-glory, all the things that we would pursue in this world to make us somebody, are we willing to put it in a casket so that we can live for him? That's the question of the day. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse of our Savior and what he has done for sinners, but also, Lord, giving us a glimpse of what our Savior says that his servants must do. I ask you today, Lord, to stir in the heart of every Christian by the power and working of the Spirit of God. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would work and work and work in the hearts of Christians, each one of us, so that once again we would come to that place of dying to self that we might live for Christ. 
Lord, let it be that we are crucified with Christ. Yet we live, but it's not us that lives. It's the life of Christ in us. And I pray, Father, we would learn to turn our lives over to him moment by moment in that way. Father, I pray also for those who do not yet know Jesus. Lord, people that have been around the church and spiritual things for a long time. And it's a, there's a tendency, the longer that we hear and the more that we hear, the harder that our hearts become. I pray, God, that by the working of the Spirit of God, you would do a miracle and take your word and crush that rock. Lord, so that they may repent and believe upon Jesus. Make Jesus the most attractive thing that they've ever thought of in their whole life. And Lord, may you draw them to the Savior for salvation. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified by our response to your word, your eternal word. All the things that may have been said today and things that we've talked about in the hallways and at the cafe and all those things that are encouraging to us. But Lord, only one thing is going to last for eternity and that is what you have said. And so God, I pray that we would take to heart that which you've said and respond with our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.